So Christ is enough for me. Yes? Yes, we sing that. And yes, we know that's supposed to be true. But I'm not certain that we really, really believe that. I'm not certain that present Christianity really reflects that. If it did, I don't think I'd have to preach the message I'm preaching this morning. But I know I do. Because the evidence all around us is telling us that Christ apparently isn't enough for most Christians. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we bow before you, our hearts open, our minds open. We desire, oh God, to live what we sing and sing what we live. But the evidence in our lives is not matching the things we say we believe and the things we sing. And so, O God, I pray this morning that the Spirit of God would wrestle our wayward hearts into submission and that we would find in you enough because you are enough. Christ is enough, O God. So we pray this and ask that you would bless your word to our hearts. May it be understood, embraced. Oh God, I pray that you would provide me with the energy and boldness that you want me to have so that I represent you and don't misrepresent you in the things that you have recorded for us from your word. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. God has something to say to you about exile. The great concern of my heart is just the uttering of that word exile is enough to have you turn a switch off and start thinking about the movie you watched last night or what your plans are for this afternoon or how this week went or how this week is going to go because exile seems so foreign to a Canadian audience in Oshawa. Exile. Doesn't exile mean you are ripped out of your country and taken to another country? Yeah, that's by definition the word exile. But let me just give you a, a, a real quick history of Israel, God's people, and the issue of exile, and, and see if you might not reconsider. The prophets, the minor prophets that we have come to, and we're about halfway now, Micah, We've all been talking about exile. In fact, exile is the, is the message, the central message of most of the prophets. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, as it moved into other prophets, exile became the, the theme and the story. 
if God's people continue to live in the same way as the cultures around them, then God will place them in those cultures to get a full dose of exactly what they think they want. And so God's people, uh, we've had, we've had uh, prophecies from the, the Hosea on uh, that some are 2,900 years old, some are, we get to Malachi, 2,450 years old. These are, these are old prophecies to Israel. And in some ways, sometimes we turn our mind off and say, well, it's an interesting story. It's great history. It's interesting information. We learn something about God, but surely it doesn't mean anything really to us. Because who's going to exile us? Uh, keep in mind that uh, Israel was thinking the same way because they were the abundant people of God. And they continued to refuse to listen to the prophets who said, if you continue to turn away from the ways of God and turn to the ways of the pagan nations around you, I will send you out of this country. I will send you out of this land. And sure enough, they refused to listen, and in 722 B.C., the Assyrians swamped the northern kingdom of Israel. Prophecy still continued, and they, they uh, went on for the next couple of hundred years, and in the, in the years of 605 B.C., the Babylonians came and exiled Israel. The Israelites were moved out and moved into Babylon. Some were left, but not many. And then after that, the Persians came, and the Persians changed... This, the, uh, the meaning, not changed the meaning, but changed the, the geography of exile. They sent the Israelites back to the land, but they occupied them. You can read this in Daniel if you're interested in understanding what an occupational pagan force looks like in your land. And then from Persia to Greece to Rome... God's people were continually in exile in their own land, occupied by pagan forces. And when Christ came and established the church, nothing changed in terms of occupation. The church became the people of God in exile. We were scattered throughout the world so that we were in the world, but not of the world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We are a people in exile. The question is not whether we're in exile or not. The question is what that exile will look like. And the prophets continue to prophesy, you don't want to be in exile. You don't want to be under the dominance and influence and impact of exile. You don't want to live that life. I did a, a significant study of the Minor Prophets 30 years ago. In fact, a lot of the material I'm drawing from right now was a graduate school project I did on the Minor Prophets. And I can tell you that the applications and what I discovered 30 years ago, although the theology is identical, the applications are extremely troubling. The way things were 30 years ago is nothing like the way things are right now. I could have never imagined 30 years ago when I was trying to draw out application for our own setting from the minor prophets what I have to, to bring you this morning. 
It's as if when you open up Micah that you're opening up today's newspaper or, or watching the news on TV or some sort of social media feed. Micah is speaking to us. And when it says here in Micah chapter 1, verse 16, shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture for they will go from you into exile. Micah is preaching to me. He's talking about my kids and my grandchildren. He, he's talking about, he's warning us that we are about to go into a different form of exile than we ever imagined. We are about to feel the full force of an occupying pagan force on us. As God withdraws his restraint and says, if you want to live, people of God, with the same values as the people of our enemy, the evil one, then I will withdraw my restraint so that you feel the full force of the occupying forces of the pagan side of things. That's the day we live in. That's where we are. I went searching for a description of the cultural ethos of the North American person. There was an article in the Globe and Mail that was quoting from a, an American journalist by the name of Rod Dreher who described the culture around us, not the Christian culture, but the culture we live in this way. The prevailing posture of this culture is this, an emotion-based spirituality of self-fulfillment. I have never read anything that I thought was more accurate than that. Your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your educators are dominated by this value. And the, the, the scary part, the, the challenging part is that this is a religion. This is our current religion, the religion we live in. The exile forces, the occupying forces that are around us live according to this value. Whereby their God is their feelings and their emotions... The divinity is within them, so the spirituality that, that they have comes from within them, their emotions, their feelings that drive them, and their purpose, their ultimate and only purpose, is self-fulfillment. What's startling and disturbing is that more and more believers, and I've been working with believers as a pastor for over 30 years, that what I'm discovering is more and more believers are living according to this very same value. When it comes to feelings, emotions, and comfort, faith takes a back seat. I know what God says, but 
This is how I'm feeling. I know what God's word says, but it will make me really uncomfortable to have to do that. And so we are, have for some time now been adopting and adapting to the very same values of the culture in which we are in exile. And as a result of that, God is saying, if you want to live according to the values of the people around you, I will give you a full force dose of what that feels like and looks like. When everybody around you is pressing in on you for their own self-fulfillment, living according to their feelings, their emotions, and their comfort. And quite honestly, is that not exactly the way our country is being run? And so we have been placed in exile by capitulation. We are waving the white flag to the prevailing posture around us and giving way to our feelings, our emotions, our comforts. Let me, let me just put it out to you as a question personally. In your own life, think about this right now. Is there anything that you are presently choosing that is based upon your feelings, your emotions, your comfort in conflict with the Word of God? And you are saying yes to your feelings, yes to your emotions, yes to your comfort. So while Christians have increasingly embraced the culture of feeling good about concentrating their lives on feeling good, feelings edge out Jesus every time. And the society, therefore, has turned up the stakes on our situation of living in exile. You see, living in exile is God's idea for us. He wants us to be in the world, but he wanted us to evangelize the darkness and push the darkness back, that the gates of hell might not prevail against the church. But if we capitulate to the values of the people around us, then the darkness closes in on us. And more and more, while you're scratching your head saying, I can't believe what's happening in this country, it's evidence, more evidence, that we're not doing our job and God is allowing, by pulling back his restraint, the full effect of exile and occupation to pour in on us. And as I, as I prepared this sermon this week, I've never felt as emotional as I do about this sermon, ever. I've never felt as, I, I sat in my office and a, the strangest feeling came over me, something I've never ever felt before. I, I, I don't know even how to describe it. It was a mixture of, of deep sadness and, and sorrow and fear and distress as I thought about my own children and my own grandchildren and the world and the way it is and the ministry and the way it is and what are we handing to them and what is it going to look like. I felt a sense of numbness come over me where I couldn't even really feel anything. Now, I don't know how to describe it, but I do know that something is up and God is calling out to us and the time is urgent. I know this. 
And, and I feel like I understood Micah a little bit when I read about him saying this in 1.8, because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I resisted the urge to do that. I will howl like a jackal, I know you're happy about that, and moan like an owl, for her wound is incurable. We're talking about God's people here. We've been listening to, to, to the prophecies against the nations and, and those who are obviously at odds with God, but this prophecy is to God's people. And Mike is so distressed. He's so disturbed. As you read this, it doesn't perhaps bring out the full sense of this, but he starts off by saying, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, verse 2, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. God is being forced to become your enemy. Mike is distressed by this. He's wondering, what is to become of the next generation? I watched my grandchildren parade into church this morning, and it, uh, my heart was just breaking as I kept looking at them and thinking, what's going to happen? My heart is breaking for Jordan. What, what, is, what is he going to minister to in the years to come? I've been in this for 30 years, and I can't believe the changes that have taken place in our country in 30 years. I can't believe the changes that have taken place in our country in 10 years. I can't believe the changes in five years. About the time Billy Graham was complimenting Toronto the Good, which is 40 years ago, William Reel, a New York uh, Daily News journalist, was clobbering the mute church of New York City. He wrote this about the city. He noted statistics that were disastrous. In just the city of New York, 400,000 alcoholics, 500,000 narcotics users, 300,000 compulsive gamblers. There had been 658,147 felonies during the previous year. Somehow, the church of Jesus Christ is not pushing back the darkness, assaults and robberies and muggings and rapes and murders, that the pornographers of Times Square had reached new lows in featuring sex films involving children. He called Times Square the sewer of the universe. This is not a Christian, by the way. He reported the experience of one citizen who had been a victim of violence, had been brushed off by the authorities. He came to this conclusion. Of course you gave up on the New York politicians long ago. They are pathetic and embarrassing. But what is worse than the abdication of political leadership in New York is the abdication of spiritual leadership. There is no one willing to speak the truth, to call the Neros to account, to warn of the wrath of God. He goes on to say this, when was the last time a church leader said anything more forceful than God bless you? New York needs a John the Baptist and churches give us Casper milk toast. Younger ones won't know who Casper Milk Toast is. The comic strip of a wimpy, pathetic guy called Casper Milk Toast. He has no backbone. He has no... Ah, I won't say anymore. He's just Casper Milk Toast. He's, for the youngers, he's a snowflake. You know what a snowflake is? You know that, don't you? The Protestant leadership is ineffectual and insipid. I had to change the word because you might not have known what a fate meant. They wrote differently 40 years ago, dumbed down the language 40 years. We can't even read language, English language 40 years ago. Debating holy orders for lesbians 
at a time when grandmothers are regularly and brutally assaulted by muggers and rapists. The Jewish establishment is moribund or dying. Jeremiah must weep when looking down from above. He contemplates these sad sacks sitting in their studies, composing Passover messages that have no more spiritual content than a press release from the liberal party. He concluded somewhat wistfully, New York was a great city when it put great emphasis on spiritual values. Maybe we can get back to this. In 2005, Canada's most notorious mass murderer, Henry Morgenthaler, was awarded an honorary doctor of laws from Western University. I contemplated sending my diploma back, but I worked way too hard to get it. And the Order of Canada was granted in 2008. The Order of Canada goes to the biggest mass murderer ever in this country. The law school aspirations of Trinity Western University are all but dead. Why? Because they deigned to have in their values sexual purity before marriage. But our country crucifies them for it. Churches required by the Trudeau government are now to attest to reproductive rights in order to obtain summer student incentives. And if you think it's going to stop there, you aren't really a thinking person. This is just a test run to see about now registering churches to attest to, in fact, the reproductive rights and gay agenda. And then it will be registration of pastors. And they won't, it won't be too long until they can come and put a chain around the doors of this church and tell us unless we attest to the reproductive rights values of this country and the gay agenda of this country, you're not permitted to assemble in this room. I'm not talking crazy talk here. I am telling you we are on the edge. We are, we are at the sunset of these things. Major corporations, and make no mistake about it, are going to frog march their employees through diversity and inclusion training to affirm sexuality and gender identity, or you are going to be marched right out of your corporation. Christians are going to have to make decisions about what we're willing to attest to, what we're willing to bow to, just like Daniel had to. I'm convinced as I look at this young generation here that most of you will not be able to go into law or, or medicine because your values will not allow you in those professions. We could have never imagined the way things were going to be and are right now. And when this book talks about shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight and make yourselves as bald as vulture for they will go from you into exile, he is talking about 2018. I hesitated to say this, and I've thought about it for a long time, but I've, I've watched the emigrants, the so-called refugees into the West who are hostile to Christianity. I want you to hear me and hear me carefully. Don't put words in my mouth and don't say I did, said something I didn't say. But this is either an invasionary force or a mission field, and it will all depend on how we actually change in our behavior. We are either going to live for Christ or if we keep living for our feelings, our emotions, our comfort, then those who have emigrated here from hostile nations to Christianity will become an invasionary force and not a mission field. 
I have watched and you have watched the systematic deconstruction of masculinity by Western governments. The feminization of the West is in full swing and Canada is leading the parade. And the women are not going to like the world that our country is making. Even now, their educational system is slanted against male children. Normal male behavior is diagnosed as a pathology. And we pump drugs into little boys because they have energy and enthusiasm and are wild at heart. And that's what men are. Inexplicably, in the science community, male testosterone is measuring 40% less than it did a decade ago. And they have no idea why. Well, you feminize a culture and pretty soon you demasculize it. I picked up my University of Western Ontario journal for this season. And the front page was applauding the most brilliant person in the university who had received a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, which is a very prestigious scholarship. It's an amazing thing to be granted. And what I'd like to have read is that this most intelligent person was going to devote themselves to using their intellect to discover a cure for cancer But here's what their plan is. They will go to Oxford and play an integral part in breaking through the social and intellectual barriers that remain for those who subvert the binary gender system. In other words, this person is going to devote their entire intellect to endorsing and helping a generation of people who are seeking to subvert the idea of maleness and femaleness. The other side has a decidedly anti-God agenda. Micah is speaking about this. Micah is saying, if you're going to live in this world and embrace the values of the world around you, God has no choice but to give you over to all of that. What do we do? How do we escape the complete and utter mess that we're in? Because our role, God has placed us in this world on purpose to be salt and light, to speak for truth and justice, to speak about righteousness, to speak about what is right and wrong, to live what is right and wrong, to live that Christ is enough so that they see that, not to live for our own emotions and our own feelings and our own comfort, capitulating to the same values of self-fulfillment as the people around us. We're to push back the darkness, not to be consumed by it, not to be swamped by it, What's that going to take? Well, from Micah, in his very distressing message, you know, he talks in the first chapter about all the small cities and small towns. His heart is bursting with grief. 
about Beth Ophrah in verse 10, and Sapphire, and Zanan, and Ezel, and Moroth, and Lachish. It's like talking about Hampton, and Columbus, and he's, he's like talking about all these people in all of these small towns. Yes, Jerusalem's in great distress, but so are all the beautiful people in all the small places. They all matter. They matter to the heart of God. They matter to us. He's calling on the leaders to do differently. So what do we do living in this malaise of uh, of self-fulfillment and feelings and comfort? Well, there's three critical things in verse chapter chapter 2 and and chapter 3. And the first is this. We must, must, must stop trading our covenant with God for materialism. We have to. We must. We must stop living, that all, living as if all that matters is the present, the physical, the immediate gratification of our feelings and our emotions and our comfort. We have to stop living like I'm all there is and all that matters. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity. Stop there. Plan iniquity. That doesn't mean you accidentally fall into sin. That means you sit and you think about it and you purposely plan it. That means that if given the choice between your feelings and your emotions and your comfort over against God's word, you say, I'm taking my feelings and I'm satisfying my emotions, and I'm satisfying my comfort, even though it's against the word of God. That's what planned iniquity is. He comes out against not only planned iniquity, but coveting fields and seizing them and houses and taking them. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Coveting fields. I want more. I want what they have. I want, I look around and I I want that big house. I want what they have. I want that car. You know, why is it that we permit covetousness? We come down hard on murder. We come down hard on stealing. We come down hard on adultery. Three other commandments. Why do we not come down on covetousness? Why do we live with it? Why is it a badge of honor? Why is it somehow the, the, the core value of capitalism that we would just have more and more and more and better? Why are the young people graduating and wanting a house the same as their grandparents had? Why is there no starting point anymore? Why is it I must have 3,500 square feet for me and my wife? When you're married, you don't want, when you're first married, you don't want three. 3,500 square feet. You want 200 square feet. You don't want to have to chase her all over that house. You want to confine quarters. He talks in chapter 3 about um, leadership from searching out pastors and churches that are in cahoots with the culture. And the end of chapter 2 as well. Look look what he says in verse 6. Do not prophesy. Their prophets say. Stop stop telling this. Their prophets would come in here right now and say, Rick, sit down and shut up. Seriously, that's that's what this is. Don't talk to us about bad stuff. Don't talk to us about challenging stuff. We want to only hear good stuff. We want to hear syrupy stuff. 
Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he even do such things? God is never angry. God is a God of love. He loves everybody. Go home and give everybody a hug. I went by a church sign, God loves everybody. He does not. He does not. Tell Esau that. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have. Is that Bible? Look at what it says in verse 11. Two. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. That's the preachers everybody wants. Some hippie hipster who comes in and says, hey, let's go and have a brewski after church. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's what, that's what Mike is talking about. And quite honestly, that's what we have going on. There's no seriousness about the gospel about the serious state of men and women's hearts, about the fact that people are doomed and dying and going into damnation? Where is the soberness? Where is the brokenheartedness? Where is the passion? Where is the energy? Where is the emotion? Where are the broken hearts? The culture has no sense of justice. Look at three. Should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil? Decision after decision coming out of Ottawa today is loving evil and hating good. The decisions made at the highest levels of justice are opposed to morality and goodness and in favor of of immorality and disgust. God is giving an explanation here why he's sending them into exile. You're not doing anything about this. You're sitting back like Casper Milk Toast. The churches of leaders who do and act and say what the crowd wants to do and hear. Who ever heard of customers of God who said to God, who come to God and say, this is the only way we'll come to your church. If you teach us this or if you teach us that, then, or if you act like this or you act like that, then we'll come to your church. God seems to reject pastors and ministries that strategize themselves around the customers, making the ministry all about their, what they hope to hear and what they hope you tell them to do. But that's the vast majority that's going on in growing churches of evangelicalism. How can we make the seekers happy? I have a news flash for you. There are no seekers. The Bible says no one seeks God. The only people who ever come into a church are dragged there by God against their will, kicking. That's how, most, that's how we came to faith. That's how you came to know Jesus Christ. You weren't wandering around seeking for him. He dragged you out of this world kicking and screaming and brought you by his grace into his great mercy through faith in Christ Jesus. As for the prophets, chapter 3, who lead my people astray, 
If one feeds them, they proclaim peace. You see, if you had have all given me a blueberry pie this week, I would have preached a much nicer sermon to you today. <laughs> Give me some, uh, some gift certificates to Five Guys Burgers and Fries and I'll change the way I preach. You'd run me out of here if I was that. And I hope you would. But they weren't running anybody out. That's the preachers they got around themselves. Thousands and thousands of dollars of God's money wasted on opulent jets and big mansions for preachers who say, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear if you give me money. Jesus says the sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. Jesus said, woe to them who offend one of these little ones. It would be better that put a millstone around their neck and threw them into the ocean. Yeah? So we know what Jesus thinks of preachers like that. And churches like that. Why are they so full of people? Because people are addicted to their feelings and their emotions and their comfort. And they love to go to places that will further encourage them to live like that. I got to wrap this up. In chapter 5, out of all of this mess of bad shepherds and bad leadership, bad settings of God's people, comes the good shepherd. The good shepherd. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. We know better because we know Jesus Christ. Amen. Our churches should be better. Jesus is enough. Our churches must be better. We know the good shepherd who rescued us from this slavery, who rescued us from this mess, who helps us to escape the dominion of our sinful desires, our emotions, our feelings, our comfort, that we might rest all in him. And what does God want, chapter 6, from you? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, verse 8, chapter 6? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When it comes down to it, folks, beloved, this is it. What's this look like to act justly? It means to take care of the weak and the wronged. It means in, in loving mercy to be generous toward those who have been wrongfully harmed. And to walk humbly with our God is to bring our life in alignment with proper respect for God's office over your life. 
You do not look God in the eyes and tell him, I'm going with my feelings, I'm going with my emotions, I'm going with my comfort, I'm going with my own interpretation. It means you say to God, I'm going with you, God. That's what walking humbly before God is. And anything different than that is not walking humbly before God. So having told you all of this kind of rough news, is there some good news? Well, I've already shared with you the good news of Jesus Christ. But did it matter? Did, did Micah matter? Did all of this preaching matter? Does all of this preaching from our church matter? Can it matter? What do you think? Should we just go home and hang our heads down and be Casper milk toast all week long? No, no, we should not. God speaks and warns his church that we might reform, that we might embrace revival, because revival and reformation matters. It's always mattered. I'm going to prove it to you. Turn back to Jeremiah 26, and with this we'll close it off. Jeremiah 26. Uh, it, this is going to be hard for you to sort of comp- or, or sort of visualize, but Jeremiah is 100 years after Micah. You know, you're saying, wait a second, I'm going back in my Bible. How could that be 100 years in advance? Well, the Bible's not laid out chronologically. Newsflash. (laughs) Micah and Isaiah were compatriots, but Micah and Jeremiah were not. Jeremiah was 100 years later. And in Jeremiah chapter 26, we pick up Jeremiah, who's, who's preaching for his life, actually, because he's prophesying exile. That's what makes me afraid when I prophesy exile. It never went well for the old prophets. This could be my last sermon. Anyway, Jeremiah is preaching, and they're going to kill him. The priests are going to kill Jeremiah. He's speaking for his life, and he, we, we pick it up in verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets... This man should not be sentenced to death. Is this not crazy? The religious guys want to kill Jeremiah. The people want to save him. So maybe you all save me. Because that's what Jeremiah was. And, And so here they are. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Moresheth. You heard of him? Have you heard of him? Okay. Just checking because we're in Micah. (laughs) Prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. And the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And guess what? It hasn't happened. Why? Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? No. Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We're about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Listen, do you not remember our history? A hundred years ago, Micah prophesied and the king reformed and revival took place and God's people turned around and the stay of judgment or there was a a stay on God's judgment. Reform matters. 
This sermon matters. How you live matters. That things can change is true. That we don't have to slip into this desperate darkness in Canada. We actually, as God's people, can rise up with a different passion and a new passion and a passion for reform and revival and say, we will not let our country become an occupying force of wickedness. We can do better. And God is calling us to it. So what should we do? Very quickly. Well, you know, Micah says, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It takes resolve, beloved. It takes resolve in your life to say, I will not give over divinity to my emotions and my feelings and my comfort. I will not. I will not go against God's word no matter how much it hurts. No matter what promotion I don't get in the workplace. I will not bow to the gods of this age. And it starts by running church apostates out of business. We need to run the liberal churches out of business. The sooner the better. We need to pressure churches that are light to stop caving to customers of religion. Or we should just take their customers away from them. We need to give no ground to compromise whatsoever with the values of the hour around us. We must not. We've already given way too much ground. We must exercise all of our citizen rights to reject violations of rights and justice that we already have entrenched in Canada. The Apostle Paul spoke boldly for his rights and so should we. We should not be caving in to those who are violating those things. And we must vote better. People, come on. Vote better. If you voted the present government in Ontario or in Canada into power, come on. Vote better. And most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, put your emotions on the shelf. Put your feelings on the shelf. Put your comfort on the shelf and take Jesus back off the shelf and put him at the center of your life where he belongs. And then come and sit at the Lord's table and then participate in communion. Our Father and our God, I thank you and I praise you for your word. And I pray, O God, that we would not allow your word to fall to the wayside, but to be embraced and grip our hearts, O oh God, for reform and revival. Because national revival will never come until personal revival starts. May it begin in me and our church, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I feel pretty confident in my heart that we are in an hour of one of three directions. Either the Lord is about to come really quickly and Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Or 
we're about to go into a very, very dark time of significant persecution. whereby we may be chased out of this building and into our own homes. And we're preparing for that. That's what the discipling communities are somewhat about. Training up leaders in small communities in case that's the way it has to be. Or there is a great revival about to happen. And if there's a great revival about to happen, I'm okay if Jesus doesn't come back right away and he can take me whenever he wants to. Because there are so many people out there who need to hear the gospel and yet get saved. And I'm good with that. But either one of those three is going to happen soon. So let's make certain that we reject the idols and gods of the culture of self-fulfillment in favor of denying ourselves so that we can follow hard after Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you stand with me as we pray? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, you yourself have said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh God, may we learn to say no to our feelings, our emotions, our comfort, self-fulfillment, the things that war against the truth when they do, that we might say yes to Jesus always that our lives may set a new and powerful salt and light agenda in a world of darkness enclosing and encroaching upon us, that we might experience the truth of your promise to the church that the gates of hell will not prevail. We believe this, we know it's true, but oh God, if we collapse to what we know to be true and what we claim to believe, we are no better than those who are lost and dying. So help us to do better, O oh God, in your strength. And for your glory, I pray. Amen. Amen.